0: I'd like to now invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. And turn with me if you would to 1st Kings chapter 16 as we read verses 24 to chapter 17 verse 7. 1st Kings chapter 16 verse 24 The word of the Lord says beginning in verse 24, And he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shamar, owner of the hill. Mari did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. In the thirty-eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for twenty-two years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In the days of Hail of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abraham, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Sagab. He set up his gates according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And the Lord, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan and And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook of Cherish, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been... No rain in the land. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And now would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, as we read verses 1 through 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes to the saints of Philippi, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And all of God's children said, Amen. Would you please be seated? Would you join me in a word of prayer? God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us all that we need to look upon it, to read it, and to understand it, to rightly apply it to our lives. We pray for your mercy, Lord, as we endeavor to to read and understand your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that it would be for your glory. God, we ask these things in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you haven't done so already, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to James chapter 5 verses 13 through 18. I have truly grown as we have marched through the book of James. Next week we will uh, look at another passage of scripture in light of celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and then in 2 weeks uh We will finish the book of James, and I pray that it has been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me to look upon it, to study it, and to exhort one another in it. This morning we are in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And if you haven't heard yet, the next book study that we will go through is the book of Genesis, uh, which is foundational for our faith and walk in Jesus Christ. But one day uh, a group of 5 people headed to various places in this building entered into an elevator. And people do what they always do as they enter into an elevator they hit the the number correlated to the floor that they are looking to go to and each of them do the door closes the elevator begins the elevator music plays but all of a sudden, without warning, what would appear to be without cause to the five people on this elevator, the elevator suddenly stops. The five people who were in this elevator, who began as very rational men and women, adults, began to become unrational. Unrational. Their emotions began to surge up within them and panic set in. What if we run out of oxygen? What if nobody ever comes and we die? What if we're forced to cannibalism? What if the power goes out? What if the thing loses power and it drops all the way and we're all crushed? And panic with gusto sets in. Two of these people taking upon themselves to make as much racket as they possibly can so that whoever might be above them or below them would hear them. And they say, help, help, help. And they cry out for, for help. The other two people take it upon themselves to make as much noise as they possibly can by taking their hands and to smacking the steel that is inside the elevator until hopefully somebody can hear them. And they join in the yelling. They they, they bang and they yell, Help us! Help us! Help us! They're so consumed with yelling or, or banging, thinking that it's going to give them the help that they need, to escape from this dungeon of death and destruction that they cannot know that no one can hear them. They've lost control, and they're just yelling for help. Well, the fifth person is watching all of this happen, and he's overwhelmed by it, but not to the point of losing his control. And he notices, as many of you have, that there is a a little handy-dandy, whatever size it is, door. If you you grab the handle and you lift up or you twist it or whatever, that it's going to open. And there is also a handy-and-dandy red phone. He's watching these people banging and yelling and losing control, and he kind of makes his way around the the four, and he gets to that door, and he lifts that thing, and he... Sure enough, he finds a red phone. Underneath the red phone are instructions. If there is trouble of any kind, pick up the phone, and somebody will be there to help you. Sure enough, as these people are yelling and banging, he picks up the phone, he sticks it to his ear, he doesn't know what he's going to hear. But somebody's on the other line, and they say, what can we help you with? He tells them the situation. And in five minutes, the maintenance man or the maintenance team comes and rescues them from the pit of despair that is the elevator at this building. Oftentimes, most of the time, in fact, we very much want to fight our own battles. Amen? If we were honest, we would very much like to fight our own battles. We would like to fight them without anybody knowing of any struggle that we might have. We suffer with various sufferings by ourselves. We deal with pain by ourselves. We look to fight various temptations by ourselves. And although neither I nor James am advocating that we tell everyone everything about our life, but we would have to agree as we enter into God's Word that there is a temptation within us to deal with most everything that God sovereignly allows in our life by ourselves. Like everything else that we've studied in the epistle of James, the letter of James, prayer is something that we need to do by faith. It marks our lives as true believers because... As we go through the myriad of trials that God sovereignly allows in our life, what we ought to see and discern is that there are things that God gives us where He gives us what we need to figure out how to get through, but there are more times than not struggles that He allows, that He simply puts in our path that we might cry out to Him via prayer, And so as we look at verses 13 to 18 this morning of James chapter 5, the reminder that James gives us is that no matter what the struggle is, the first thing we ought to think of whenever we come up against something, that we pray, that we reach out to brothers and sisters, perhaps that we or not perhaps, but brothers and sisters that we trust, who can bear the burden with us, because this life of faith that we live for the glory of God our Father and for His Son, Jesus Christ, we don't do within our own strengths. Amen? We do with the help that the Lord has provided to us. And therefore, it should be our prerogative... (laughs) It should be our desire to both pray for ourselves, our concerns, as well as those of our brothers and sisters. First off, in verses 13 to 15, James commends prayer as something every believer ought to do in our life. Prayer, then secondly, verses 17 and 18, is something the whole community should do. I'm sorry, that's verse 16. And then verse verses 17 to 18, we see the powerful effects of prayer. With that being said, would you please follow along with me as I read God's word for you? Beginning in verse 13, says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. We begin in verses 13 through 15, where James begins a discussion on prayer by commending every believer to pray. To do that... In the context that we are in, he asks three simple questions. The first one, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you suffering? The word suffering, patheo, rolls off the tongue. patheo is a word that refers to someone enduring the evil treatment at the hands of other people. So what James is doing is, in verses 1 through 6, he, he talked about how the rich would oppress the poor. In verses 7 through 12, he talked about how those who are enduring the suffering of other people needed to do so patiently as waiting upon the Lord But in verse 13 to verse 18, James now describes that in our patient waiting, we need to pray, to cry out to the Lord. Some have thought that this word suffering in verse 13 refers to some physical illness. But as we see, according to the Greek, it actually refers to the wicked treatment of sinful people against the believer. And what James says in our suffering is that we are to pray. He says explicitly, let him pray. Is James somehow being flippant or dismissive? No, because the idea as we look down the corridor of our future or what it might be and how people are treating us What James is telling us here in praying as we suffer is the same thing that the apostle Paul said in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 through 4. He writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what James is telling us is what the Apostle Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians, that when we suffer, we cry out to God not to rehash the situation that is happening that he already sovereignly understands is happening, but that he might be able to comfort us. And what Paul adds to that exhortation is that when the Lord our God comforts us, as we cry out to him, we can then comfort that those brothers and sisters of ours with his same comfort. The point being is that we're not simply called upon to pray as we suffer to pray, to, to cross it off the, the to-do list, but that we can purposely cry out to our one and only true source of comfort who will comfort us indeed. It gives us a second question. Verse 13, he says, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? His word cheerful is an interesting word, but it is literally someone going through various trials who has a joyful attitude as they go through them. James says, let him sing psalms. Let him sing psalms sing psalms for James here in this context brings together the idea that singing and praying are closely related we see that in in philippians chapter 4 verse 6 But we also see it in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In other words, we are praying for God's comfort, and when the Lord gives us joy, the joy of salvation, we continue to pray, to cry out to God, but we also thank Him for the work that He's doing in our lives. James asks a third question, verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? This word sick, as then "eh eo, as then "eh eo, is often translated to mean physically sick. But the idea here of being sick, verse 14, isn't physically sick. It is a spiritual weakness that comes upon us as we suffer. We sing in a, in a hymn and you'll have to forgive me. I don't remember what it's entitled, but the song acknowledges how easily our heart drifts from the Lord whom we love. And what James is talking about here in this sickness is a sort of spiritual uh depression, a downtroddenness, an exhaustion, a weariness that comes from fighting the constant onslaught of various troubles that God allows in our lives. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Literally, the idea of being sick is feeling discouraged because trouble just keeps on keeping on. Notice what he says. He says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This anointing with oil is something that many Christian people think has something to do with something spiritual, super spiritual. That if we if we acknowledge that we have suffering and we come to the spiritual council and we ask them to pray over us and they anoint us with oil, that somehow everything that has been troubling us is going to somehow disappear and everything is going to be returned to what it ought to be in our estimation. But the word anointing actually has to do with medical treatment. It's not this official ceremony that super spiritual Pentecostals want it to be. It is literally coming and the elders, the spiritual council, myself, care for you. We encourage you. We pray for you. We uplift you. And if that means literally taking oil and applying it to a wound, that we do it. Notice what it says here, verse 14 anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. See, some people want to come asking for prayer I remember I used to go and visit Rachel at KU and the people that she worked with knew that I was going into ministry and I think maybe by then I already was and they would come and they would ask me for prayer as if I had some special connection to the Lord and I would pray this magical prayer and Zippo, everything in their life would return to normal. But when James says something in the name of the Lord, what he's saying is that when you come to us, the spiritual counsel to to me, to Jim, to Elton, whoever it might be, and you ask us for prayer, our prayer is that you would be healed, amen? It is that God would help you get out of whatever it is that's happening, but on the flip side of the coin, we'd also be asking God to do what God wills in your life. In other words, coming and asking for prayer is not about about our praying simply your agenda, but what God might want in your life. Verse 15. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This word save and the prayer of faith will save. It's the Greek word sozo. It means to restore. He says, the Lord will raise him up. Literally, that means to awaken, to arouse. The idea is that a believer will be encouraged, will be strengthened, and will return to doing those things which they have been called to do. And it says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The idea here is that when someone who is suffering at the hands of someone else and they are growing in discouragement, that they will be open enough both to pray about the things that are concerning them as well as to humbly go before the elders, the spiritual council of the church, and to share with them what's going on. It becomes our job to encourage you, to pray for you, to tend to you spiritually, asking what God would want for you in this situation according to his sovereign will. We lift one another up. We look to encourage, to strengthen. But now, verse 16, secondly, James goes from addressing individual needs to showing that our prayer is something the whole community ought to do. He says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Before we get into what the text is actually saying it's difficult right off the bat, is it not? It says, "Confess your trespasses to one another." It is our our sins, our shortcomings, that we might pray for one another. He says, "And pray for one another that you may be healed." It's interesting. Uh, the word "healed" is the the, the word. Healed here is the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The idea of coming to one another to pray, the biblical idea of going to one another for prayer, isn't that we would pray just for an outcome that you would want to see, but that God would work in you what he has purposed for his glory, that we would grow, that we would become sanctified, that we would walk as he has called us to in the newness of life, that we would be spiritually restored, healed, encouraged, renewed, Notice that he says the the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The idea of fervency is that the prayer is made to work, but it isn't at the hand of someone who is a prayer warrior. It is at the hand of someone who has been sanctified and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb no differently than anybody else. In other words, James is encouraging us to humble ourselves, acknowledge that we do have issues in our life, we struggle at the hands of others in our life, and that we need prayer. And when we pray, whether we feel that we have this ability or we don't, we encourage one another for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thirdly, verses 17 and 18, he gives us an example of the power of prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What this needs to be for us is an example of how scripture interprets scripture. Because if you remember when we read, when we read in first Kings 17 and, well, it was mostly 16 and 17, we did not see that Elijah described the duration of the drought. But we see here, according to James, led by the Spirit of God, that that drought Total three years and six months. We're also not told in 1 Kings 16 and 17 that it was Elijah who prayed for the drought. The point that James is making to us, it says, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. The idea here is that a man, Elijah, who was a prophet, was no differently than you and I. And yet when he prayed earnestly, according to God's will, God gave him the thing that he asked for. Elijah is like us. He is an ordinary guy who does extraordinary things because God so empowers him for his glory and his purposes to do so. But Scripture tells us that Elijah was someone who was oftentimes hungry, that he was afraid, that he got depressed. But when he prayed by faith that God would hold the rain because it was God's will to withhold the rain, that God then did so for a total of three years and six months. And then when Elijah prayed again, being no differently than you or I, that God brought forth the rain. Understand that James is using this great man of faith, Elijah, to tell us that he is no differently than you and I. But when he prayed, he prayed fervently with faith, according to the will of God, and God gave him what he prayed for. You and I might not feel as if we have the ability, or have you ever had the ability to pray such a prayer that would bring rain after three years, or help someone be encouraged in their walk with the Lord. In fact, most of us, would honestly say that we've never felt even qualified to say anything who is hurting amongst us. Yet God's word explicitly tells us that like Elijah kept rain from pouring and a drought ensued and then prayed again and the rain fell, that you and I are called to be the type of people who offer up prayers for our beloved and encourage one another by faith. We have a very, a very distinct ministry within the church. I remember different times listening to two people talking in the world and one of them was talking to the other about all of their problems and the one who was listening was only listening long enough to impute their issues. They weren't actually listening to one another. They weren't bearing one another's burdens. They weren't going to go anywhere beyond this conversation. They were simply waiting for the one person to end what they were saying so that they could hop in with stuff that they wanted to say. But the Christian, on behalf of one another, bearing one another's burdens, gets to hear the heartache of our brother and sister and pray for them. That's something that the world doesn't understand. And we get to do it even though you may not feel qualified or gifted to do it. We get to pray, as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, for those who hurt us, who spitefully it says, use us. We get to pray for them. We get to pray for one another. And the closer we get to the Lord our God, as we study His Word, the three forms of unity, we become an active part of the church, we begin to understand what it is that God would want us to pray, what is His will in this particular person's life, and you you get to pray for them. You get to encourage one another. You know, some of the most encouraging things that have ever happened to me in my life didn't happen because this person I was sharing with had the greatest theologically precise answers. You know, sometimes I just sat with a brother, had no way of explaining my heartache in this given situation and wept. And that brother didn't have the six points of whatever he didn't Break down whatever theological point. He simply wrapped his arm around me and let me. So quit feeling this pressure that if someone shares with us something that is deeply troubling to them, that you have to have the perfect answer. That you have to have the perfect verse to give them because sometimes all God wants us to do is to literally bear with one another. What does Paul say? That we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And sometimes that's all you need to do. And that's something that we ought to rejoice for. Because the comfort with which God has given me, I now get to give and encourage you with. Don't ever believe in your heart that you can't do that. Because you have the spirit of the living God in you. He has transformed you and your heart from destruction and wickedness into being alive. And therefore, you can do what He has done for you in the lives of your brothers and sisters. Whether you have a seminary degree or you work a 9-to-5 job, God has blessed you to be an encouragement to one another. Amen? You know, by way of illustration, even this morning, as it were. Do you know that I have, I have never ever seen any of you walk up to any of the chairs that you are now sitting in and inspect the chair before you sat down. Amen. Literally, I have never seen anybody walk up to the chair and you know this is the leg of the chair, kind of make sure that it's stable or push down on the cush- on the cushions and examine the chair before you sat down in the chair. What do you do when you come in? You've been here for however many years, but the first time you came in, you walked up to the chair, saw that it was a chair, that it was made to be a chair, and you by faith sat down in the chair. Amen? What would happen, though, if as you're sitting there in the chair, believing by faith that this chair is going to uphold your self... And somebody comes and does just that. they check out the chair. you're sitting there, and they walk up to another chair and begin to inspect it. They look at the legs, they shake the legs, the legs gonna work, they walk up to the cushion and they push it down is it gonna is it gonna sustain me? You know they look at all the various parts of of chairdom, and they say to you, they say, "I believe that that chair can hold me up." you say well are are you going to sit down?" And they say, "No." So you would know that although they say they believe that that chair exhibiting chairdom could hold them up, won't by faith act on what they say they believe. The word of the Lord makes it very clear to each and every one of us that our greatest source of comfort other than Jesus Christ himself is you. And don't ever believe that you can't encourage one another that when you go home and you you feel the burden of somebody's life and the difficulties and you go home and you pray for them, you believe because God's word tells us to do that, that God at the hand of a righteous person, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous person, man, avails much, the promise from the word of the Lord that when we pray and we seek the Lord for His will, He'll answer for His glory. Now next week, if you guys come in and you begin to inspect the chairs, Jim will have a talk with you afterwards. But how, how many of us, we send out prayer requests, and I'm not saying any of this to somehow suggest that we aren't praying for one another, but what it is is an encouragement to keep praying for one another. So how many of us keep praying for one another? How many of you will find someone that you trust and you open up about your need how many of you are trustworthy to not only he to not only hear the need but to keep it private between you? So that's another issue we have to feel safe with one another amen and how many of us believe that God Almighty does actually answer our prayers? let me give you an example. Several years ago when Rachel and I were living in Kansas City, Rachel, I forget which department you were in, it doesn't matter, but she became friends with this woman who was young. She had several children already, her boyfriend, uh, who I think wasn't the father of these other kids, but impregnated her and was encouraging her to get an abortion. This woman comes to Rachel. She's in her early 20s, and she says, I'm pregnant, and my boyfriend wants me to abort this child. Rachel and I by then were looking to adopt. She threw it out there. We'll take him. This woman said I'll talk to my boyfriend I'll you know we'll 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 think about it and we'll let you know and a couple of days rolls by I don't think Rachel saw this young mother between times but they finally saw one another and Rachel says well you know what what do you what do you think what your boyfriend say and this woman says my boyfriend wants me to get an abortion That's it We're going to make an appointment or however it works and that's that. Well, what are you thinking about doing that? Well, it's still up in the air. Rachel comes home. I came home, and we had a, a meeting. You know what we did? We let every Christian person we knew, who we were friends with, know that this woman is being forced to get an abortion. Well, she's doing it willingly, but... She's getting an abortion anyway. We told all kinds of people. I don't even remember how many people we had praying for us, and at least a couple of months goes by. We don't know what happened. We continue to pray. We believe that our friends continued to pray with us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But one day, randomly, Rachel runs into this woman. She says, "What happened?" She said, do you know over the course of those months that three times I went to that clinic to get that abortion and it just never happened? She said, I can't even explain how in the world it didn't happen. I just went to get this thing done so that my boyfriend would love me and it just didn't happen. The last time that she went, the doctor, um, I don't know what you call it, but put a thing up against her tummy so that she could hear the, the heartbeat, you know. It changed everything for her. I don't even know how many people we asked for prayer, but God answers prayer. Don't you ever believe in your heart that you don't have the God-given ability because God hears you, that he won't answer your prayer in the life of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to be a people who prays, believes that you hear our prayers, and that you will answer us according to your will and purpose. For it is in your precious name we pray. Amen.